Hello and welcome to The Crux, the weekly Women's Agenda podcast sharing our latest news, opinions and ideas. On the episode this week, we'll be talking about women in entrepreneurship, the latest findings of community attitudes about violence against women, New South Wales politics, possibly some federal politics and much more. Thank you for listening. My name is Angela Priestley, the publisher and co-founder of Women's Agenda, and I'm joined today by a special co-host, Sue Dharmapala. Hello, Sue. How are you? Hi, Angela. How are you going? Good. Thank you. So Sue is the founder of Polypedia, and we will get more into that in a few minutes because it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, You are a woman also in startup tech, in politics as well, which is really, really interesting and doing some really cool things. I believe you also just predicted the New South Wales state election result. Uh, We did. So that's been three for three for us. So we accurately predicted the May 2022 federal election outcome, the November state election outcome in Victoria, and now the New South Wales state election. Okay, so that is pretty amazing. So we will learn a little bit more about that in a moment. And also, I think it's great to have you in this episode because we do want to talk about women's entrepreneurship too. So as always, we do like to start with a win for women from the week. What is your win? Okay, I'm just going to talk about something that made me chuckle this week. And I went, right, you know, you could never have read that somewhere in the newspaper, you know, in media 20 years ago. And it was the wonderful Annabelle Crabb, who does, you know, Kitchen Cabinet and has done a lot of political reporting, talking about having a mammogram and all the fun of the whole process in a very candid, graphic, no holes barred description of what a mammogram feels like. And I I just sat there and I just giggled and I thought 20 years ago the talk about breasts and the graphic nature of breasts would have never been published on the ABC or any of them. But, you know, everyone's like, yep, every second person has breasts. This is a very normal part of life. It's It was something that made me chuckle and really stand up top of mind. But the other thing that really sort of for me was the biggest win was seeing the election results roll in from New South Wales and seeing how unsurprised the community was to Mm. see women independents rise up and women in government. I really am longing for the day where women in government, in politics, in leadership is not to be remarked on and it's like, oh, yes, they're here. There's nothing magic about this. Great, we've broken the ceiling. It's multi generations of women so I you know the New South Wales election was you know a testament of all the strides we've made in the last 20 years even post Gillard. I've got two comments from your different wins there but then I'll go to a separate win but my first comment was about what you mentioned about Annabelle Crabb and the breast screening test and it reminded me of a well-known US anchor and I can't remember her name at the moment but she actually goes through the process of having a colonoscopy And it was such a great thing because obviously it is the key test for diagnosing bowel cancer, which is one of the biggest killers of Australians, any gender. And it sort of just humanized the process. It brought a bit of humor to it. And I just thought it was a great thing because typically that's the sort of thing. It was like, oh, you wouldn't even talk about that. You wouldn't even tell someone that you were doing that test. But to to go and do it and to do it so publicly and there was a 
you know, a camera there. Like obviously there was mm-hmm. something discreet going on with the camera, but, uh, you know, just to open up and go through that process, I thought was really wonderful. So I've got to go and check out that piece from Annabelle Crabb now too, regarding the breast screening. And then on New South Wales politics, I mean, I agree. I think one of the things for me was just how much was pushed around with the Liberal Party and pre-selecting women and how so much of the media really stayed on that agenda and that story constantly, constantly asking the question. I mean, it didn't help, but um, so it didn't help a lot. But, you know, it's just this idea that, you know, we've come to expect that women will be pre-selected and that women will be elected. So we will keep pushing and keep asking those questions, which is obviously going to ensure that the issue is constantly raised in party rooms and pre-selection processes also. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so I was going to go somewhere else with my win, but I might raise that later. I might just stick with the New South Wales election and I might say this is a win because I think it will lead into the fact that we do want to discuss the election results and I appreciate this is a national conversation. I might add, Sue, that you are based in Melbourne, so we're not being overly New South Wales centric, but you may also have some perspectives from the recent Victorian election as well. (laughs) But I want to talk to about the uh, race to the top comments that came out of now Premier Chris Minns leading Labor and then former Premier Dominic Perrottet leading the coalition. They were so respectful in their concession and victory speeches. I also happened to interview each of them separately over the past 10 days or the 10 days leading up to the election. And I really took that away from both conversations that neither said anything negative about the other and they didn't actually say anything negative about anyone during the entire conversations. So I took that as refreshing and it was clearly raised on the night as well. They both had quite nice things and positive things to say to each other. And Chris Minns, no, I think it was Dominic Perrottet who said it was the campaign was a race to the top. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a piece about this sort of comparing it to the very much race to the bottom of other things that we've seen over the past few weeks, particularly around the trans community and that community being targeted. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to get your perspective on that. Did you feel it was positive, the campaign? Do you feel that it was a turning point, that it was respectful? Uh, look, a couple of perspectives. So we were looking very closely at the South Australia election, which was towards the start of last year, if my mm. memory serves me well. Yep, because we weren't ready for South Australia when Peter Manilowskis won. Oh, no, it was late 2021 uh, when he won government. And then you look at Dominic Perrottet and Chris Minns. I would say the two South Australian and New South Wales elections were very, very positive because it was about leadership from the front. It was about creating a vision. It was about going, how can we serve the state instead of having this, you know, gloves off, bear pit kind of ripping each other to shreds kind of politics. Now, the good thing about a positive campaign in my idea is that it creates the space for community building. And that's what we need more of. That is what I saw beautiful about the New South Wales campaign. It was about building people up and building and presenting people in a leadership format, which was fantastic. And the same in South Australia, the concession speeches were very polite, very uplifting, and it was about that community. And I'm really heartened by that. And I also think that may have something to do also with both campaigns had very large volumes of women. This was about community bringing each other up, women, you know, rising with the tide and going, there's a better way to do things. Mm. Yeah. And I think the whole conversation specifically around the trans community, you know, the Nazi salute, Mm -hmm. everything about that 
comes to that sense of community and how we've lost what it is to be in a community and have a historical understanding of why you know, Nazis, I can't believe I have to say this, yeah. why Nazis are evil in 2023. But yeah. again, that speaks to the fragmentation within the Victorian community during the three lockdowns we experienced mm. and the fact that various politicians didn't put community first and sought division as a means of actually winning government, but that didn't fly. Yeah, it didn't fly. That was, I mean, I guess a positive out of that, that it feels like there was a bit of a race to the bottom there. And especially from, you know, some fringe elements where this idea that, you know, maybe if we run with this level of hate, we'll pick up something. And I just think that it's the most disgusting thing to ever want to pursue, to ever want to pursue hate as a way to get attention or hate as a way to get elected or like to think that people are out there thinking, oh yeah, I'm okay with that being my legacy. What do you possibly see, if not good for the community, what do you possibly see as good for you as an individual from participating in that? Oh, look, you know, you raise a really, really, really good point. And, you know, a part of my work, you know, in setting Polypedia up and in engaging with people on politics is talk about, you know, we do a lot of market research. We do a lot of, spend a lot of time talking to voters, trying to understand their pain points so we can address it and, you know, deal with it. And for me, politics and, you know, grassroots politics and what we saw with the rise of the independence is that it is a grassroots movement it's you know people from the community representing the community but one of you know one of my many experiences you know shadowing these campaigns being participant from a data perspective is especially during the lockdown period people felt that they were alone and isolated they found community in whatever method that was online and if they felt ridiculed or othered in other parts, large parts of the community, then they would gravitate towards this. And what may be, you know, I disagree with X became just a little crack and then the fissure got, grew and grew and they got they got sucked down that rabbit hole. And we need to have a program to bring these people because for me, it's radicalization. Mm-hmm. It's radicalization. How do we bring these people back? We spent billions upon billions upon billions of dollars prosecuting radicalization and combating radicalization just after the 9 11 um, bombings. I mean, mm. we had programs. We now need to shift all that learning that we got from that into Christo fascist radicalization and go, how do we break these groups? Because the path they're on, we've, we saw during the 1930s, we know where that goes. And that's where I've, you know, intellectually and emotionally and from my heart, I've had to pivot going, Sue, don't react to this going, you know, if I met them, they'd want to, you know, being a woman of colour, they would have no track with me, right? Absolutely zero. To go, actually, why do they think that way? What are the steps to bring them along that path, to bring them back to, you know, that sense of community, that sense of engagement where they can see without having to go, Amir Kalpa, I got this wrong, going, right, okay, that was then, this is now, I've come to a point in my life where I, I don't see the value in Nazi values. I think it's like such a massive conversation and I wonder if, It is one that is being had enough here. I know that there's great research around this, but I think back to like last year, there was was stories about uh, say in South Korea where there's been this massive shift of men 
rejecting feminism and sort of taking to the streets to reject feminists and just, you know, kind of out there with slogans saying the most awful thing about women. And it's kind of almost like if you look at where, where the history is coming it's like what has happened there? And it's, well, somewhere along the line they've potentially felt excluded from this change and this transformation that is occurring. And we've obviously seen it happening a lot in the United States and we've kind of seen some of the result of that as well where, you know, you might argue that, you know, there might be an element of young men who have felt that they have been left out of this conversation or that the uh, push to, say, equality or to get more diverse voices, they might perceive it as being that they have to get shoved aside or something and mm-hmm. where's their opportunity? And so uh, I wonder if that all links in and, you know, maybe we're starting to see it more in Australia. And it's a huge risk and it's one that we need to understand because once you radicalise someone, how do you bring them back? You're not going to bring all of them back and it only takes one to do something completely stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw that, you know, we saw stupid in Christchurch. We've seen stupid in so many different parts of the world. We, I think, you know, the for me, the Nazi rally on the weekend in Victoria on the steps of Parliament, you know, it was that sense of horror that we had when we saw gallows false gallows erected on Spring Street. This is not what this urbane cosmopolitan city that is Melbourne with all its ethnic groups, you know, the diversity of language, the diversity of inclusion in the city is amazing. And yet we had gallows. How does that work? Mm. I wanted to go into and just to sort of discuss some of the key findings of the ANROSE report that has actually just come out in the last, I think, hour or so. Basically, the ANROSE report, which is the National Community Attitudes Survey about violence towards women, it's been released today. It was a survey done in 2021 and it includes more than 19,000 Australians. So it's, it's really comprehensive and it is the longest running such survey in the world. And obviously super handy because you can compare on previous years and see how things have changed. And there was certainly some positives to come out of that report. So 81% of respondents agreed that controlling a partner by denying them money was a form of violence. And so that was up from 53% in 2013. And that was highlighted there to show that Australians are starting to recognise that violence can come in many different forms. A few things that were of concern was that two in five people mistakenly believe that domestic violence is perpetrated by both men and women equally. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a 23% increase since 2009. Another one that I, I actually used as sort of the lead in a story that I've written on this today, and I used it as a lead because I found that whenever the media kind of swarms on a home where something horrific has occurred, where there's been horrific violence, the media will go there and they'll start interviewing people in that neighbourhood on those streets. And you hear this same thing over and over again where people are like, oh, this is a quiet area or this thing doesn't happen around here or this is such a surprise. And it's not to say those people should have known necessarily, but it does point to the fact that people seem to think that this is an issue that affects, you know, people somewhere else. And that certainly came through in the results. So they found that 91% believe violence against women is a problem in Australia. So obviously high, not sure what the other 9% are thinking, but fine, 91%, obviously overwhelming majority, but only 47% of respondents believe it is a problem in their own suburb or town. Do you find that result surprising? Not at all. Mm. Not at all, to be honest, because in my humble opinion, it's this is the scourge of violence and domestic violence against women is that it is a silent cry. Not many people talk about it. As a woman, you don't want to own up to it. 
And if I were just to reflect on the way we live in Australia, most of us live in houses or apartments. We close the door. We don't even know what's happening in each other's neighborhoods, which is where you know I find that, you know, guys, we live in this really uber-privileged country where if you've closed your front door, your neighbours literally don't know what's happening. And if I were to go back to take, for example, Sri Lanka or my childhood in Singapore where you lived in high-density apartment blocks or very close by to your neighbours where, you know, you don't have this massive garden or individual space where people live in a more communal way, you know very quickly when there is a family that's on the brink. Mm. You just do because you can hear the fights, uh, you can hear what's happening in the community and there is that sense of you know what's happening. So I'm completely unsurprised by this because of the nature of the way we live and because of the nature of the way women in particular have been socialised not to discuss such painful and personal information, right? Who wants to go out and say, guess what, my, my partner doesn't allow me to spend my money. He he or she has brutalized me the night before. It's it's seen as a personal failing rather than, you know, in your mind, you know, you go through why did this happen? Did I contribute to this? How can I actually stop this from happening? So I think there's a lot there. Yeah. So I think it also goes to the idea that it's everywhere. Mm. That it doesn't matter if you have the nicest house or something. It doesn't change the fact that it's still everywhere, that it affects all the community. And that's why it goes back to the workplaces as well because I think there's been a great shift in the conversation of workplaces obviously recognising that family and domestic violence is affecting their employees. And we see the impact of that through policies and where they're offering paid leave to help with victim survivors in terms of dealing with what they need to deal with. But it also the conversation is then, well, if there's victims, there's also perpetrators. Exactly. You know, I know I know there has been a lot of strides in the last 10 years about having specialised leave, but one of the questions I really want to know is how many women have actually tapped into mm-hmm. that reserve of leave to actually take it out? How many women have then had that hard conversation with their managers yeah. or their higher-ups to go, I'm in a domestic violence situation, I need leave? How many people have done that? Mm. How many women or men have done that? That's the statistic we don't know. Yeah, we we don't know. And I think I've heard of employers where they do, and this is important, you need to go beyond offering the leave. You need to make sure that you've got trained responders. I mean, first of all, that people can take the leave without having to, you know, divulge their situation. Like, oh, yeah, disclose their situation so much. But also that there is people there who are not their direct manager, that are people in the organisation who do have the training who can act as that responder in terms of support or saying where they might be able to go next because that little link there can be so important. And it's, again, it's not just saying, okay, we know that people need time off work to be able to look for a new place to live or, uh, you know, go to court, whatever is involved, but also to say that, like, we also have a responsibility to make sure that, you know, somebody's looking out for this individual. Mm, Because it's, Mm. it's, you know, it's not just the moving of house, it's ongoing Mm -hmm. therapy, family therapy, court systems. Finding a family therapist is not easy and it's not cheap either. How does someone who's on a minimum wage, single parent who's struggling to actually get into affordable housing, how do you actually pay for therapy? Yeah. So we have written on the Anne Rose report just today, so you can look up there. We've actually just taken a stack of the findings and I've actually just put them at the bottom of my story just to make sure that people can can see those findings quickly. 
So I'm going to shift completely different direction now. So, and it's a good way to kind of bring in your story. So to get the story behind Polypedia, but I, I want to put it in this context as well, because I know that there has been some developments for you with Polypedia, not just with the election, but just in the last week. But I want to talk a little bit about the startup ecosystem in Australia, just for a moment, because I'm quite passionate about trying to get some of these figures out, because I just don't think people realize how dire the situation is that the Australian ecosystem, startup ecosystem is, you know, it might be booming, it's exciting, it's like innovative and all this cool stuff is happening, but it's still very much a male dominated area. So I wrote about this a few months ago, but I keep going back to these stats. So just 3% of VC capital went to all women founded startups in 2022. Mm -hmm. Just 10% went to startups with at least one woman. So this is from the State of Australian Startup Funding Report. Mm -hmm. And basically, there's not really any female founders among the $100 million plus deal club, or it's very Mm -hmm. rare, and you can probably name those female founders who they are. And when it comes to the deals that were getting done, so just 23%, so at least, you know, there's a higher volume of deals getting done, 23% of 2022 deals included at least one female founder. Uh, That was up from 18% from 2021. But for all female-founded businesses, that is shocking, (laughs) 3%. And so, Sue, I believe you are an all-female-founded business. We are an all-female-founded business. And firstly, you know, really on behalf of the Polypedia team, thank you because we've had some great advocates in women's agenda. You've gone to market with our foundation story, which was fantastic because we literally met, Ebony and I knew each other for a while, but we literally met at the Women's March in 2021. Yeah. Which is so good. Like that message of, you know, enough and here you are. Yes. Enough, right? Yeah. Um, look, you know, a couple of things. I think there was a recent chat GPT analysis of the Australian startup ecosystem. And um, I think the question was around, does Australia have a robust and thriving startup ecosystem? And chat GPT was quite blunt in saying no. We don't have, you know, I, I can pull that up and I'll send it. I'm going to ask chat GPT right now. So <laughs> continue. I've just been in the background. The answer was a no because Our startup ecosystem focuses a lot on manufacturing, quantum. It's very male-oriented, very male and mining-oriented startups that succeed in Australia. And if you look at Australia's Forbes 50 richest people, you've got Gina Reinhart, then you've got Twiggy, then you've got Gina's kids. Five and six are... Scott Farquhar and Mike Cannon-Brooks, and mm-hmm. then we've got the Canva kids. The Afterpay boys haven't even got there. So you've got mining, 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 yeah. retail, mining, tech, mining, mining, retail, tech. And we compare, compare that to the United States where it's tech, 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 tech. You go to France, it's luxury goods, tech, luxury goods, tech, tech, wines, obviously France and you can you know you've got some similar analogies in the UK but it comes back to one of the great Australian tech startups Atlassian, Canva, CultureAmp, AirWallex right Mm -hmm. of the 20-30 years that we've been in digital how do we only get four unicorns when you've got so much tech talent in this country and it comes back to the fact that when I go and pitch to American investors, I don't get past the third page of my pitch deck where they're excited by an idea and they're excited by a possibility. Australian investors are excited by how quickly can they make their money and exit. Yeah. That's the big, 
big difference. Americans are excited by possibility. They're willing to experiment. They're willing to change. They're willing to back a good idea. Whereas I find when I'm dealing with Australian investors, it's like, what's the traction? Don't even come talk to me unless you're making $100,000 or $500,000 a month. I want an exit strategy because they're in it for the money. They're not in it for the passion. Yeah. Okay. Is it because in the US they are willing to take more risks because they know that they're looking for the massive, you know, the unicorn of unicorns, whereas here the market's smaller? Well, the market's smaller and less passionate. Mm. So, you know, one of the things that we're really lagging right now is investment in AI and Web3. Mm-hmm. AI is going to take over the way we live life, not because Skynet's going to come and we're going to have Terminator, but because it's going to make people, you know, some some of the startup pitches I've seen around helping people make decisions better on shopping, so removing food wastage, better on logistics, so trucks are not going around, spend wasting time going from suburb to suburb. So you see that in DoorDash and that kind of technical thinking, that kind of passion to actually go, I can't see a market today, but I can see a future Mm. in this market. We don't do that thinking too well because we are still wedded to mining, 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 because we know there's a return on investment. To have an ecosystem like what you have in the United States for tech startups, you've got to have the courage to lose a few. You know, you're funding 10, you hope that one makes it through the mark. In Australia, the funding paradigm is you invest in 10, you expect nine to cross over the line, not actually then unpacking that Australian Australian investors were highly exposed to crypto, yeah. highly exposed to all these really dodgy deals where they invested thing on, you know, just on a good luck. Whereas, you know, I get up there, I've got solid business case, I've got a very defined market and they go, I don't fit that mould of a young male cocky startup founder I am nearly 49 years old I'm a woman and I'm a woman of color it's like you know that bottom of the um, investment paradigm I'm I've got a spot there and that's me but you know I'm going no I'm passionate about the way we engage in politics and that traditional media has broken down and we need a better way to make decisions because we don't just need a change of government, we need better people in government. Absolutely, and a better understanding of what happens in government. I did want to ask you one more question just on entrepreneurship, just in terms of raising, because you've mentioned now Australian experience and experience in the US. What would you say, you've written about this as well for Women's Agenda, but to share now, what are some of the barriers that you've encountered? Like what's going on there in terms of when you're going to those conversations with investors? What do you think needs to change? Look, uh... A few structural things need to change. I think to encourage investment in women, you know, these are some of the things I've brought up previously. I think any VC or angel investor who invests in women-led startups, they should get tax breaks. You know, hold out the carrot, give tax breaks, have mandatory reporting requirements on how many pitches have you actually heard from women and how many have gone through the deal flow. And have those metrics to say, you know, as a VC, my accreditation or as an angel investor, my accreditation is I have ensured that I've invested at least 30, 40 to 50% in female-led startups because you know what? Those metrics matter. Tax breaks matter. And I also think there is a huge barrier in terms 
of confidence. So a couple of weeks ago, I, I pitched at a university open mic night. And whilst the male, you know, would be entrepreneurs are very confident to come up to me and speak and tell me how they would actually improve on my business idea, the women were more reticent. And some of the programs that I've seen work effectively in the United States are around open mic nights where young girls are actually asked and encouraged to use their voice and have that confidence to approach founders, VCs, angel investors. I think those those are two areas because you kind of really need to fix how women approach it and having that confidence just to go, you know what? You know, for me, one of the two critical things is, you know, in my head when in my founder's journey was sitting there in 2016 in my office and watching Donald Trump win the election and go, mm-hmm. God damn it, if this man can win the election, so can I. And having, you know, you kind of get to that point where you go, you know, I don't need to know everything. I know a lot of female founders feel like, you know, they need to do the next course, another course and another course. So they know everything instead of taking that first step and going, you know what, I'm going to learn this along the way. And the other one is the VCs and the angel investors and the investor networks, they need to be held to account. Tax breaks, incentives, mandatory reporting, how have you actually gone out and how how can VCs actually help female founders with things like due diligence, like financial models? I mean, I've worked in tech for 25 years or so. I'm very good at technical delivery. That's my bread and butter. I've been doing this. I know how to get something into market. I know how to do go-to-market strategy. I know how to do business plans. But what I don't know is how to structure a deal. So I was really lucky. I had people around me who could actually help me do that. But that's where VCs could really, really step in and go, you know, this is not another six-week course. We're going to have you in and we're going to help you along the way. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you. So we'd like to end each episode on just sort of a quick final thought. So something that is on your mind right now that you're sort of taking into the next week and it can be about anything really. It doesn't have to be about women, but anything on any of the topics that we've discussed or, or something else that you've seen on uh, Twitter today, what you're thinking about. You guys, you can't see, I mean, you can see the paintings behind me, but what you can't see are there are two statues directly across from me. One is of the goddess Saraswati, who is the patron goddess of Buddhists and of intellectuals. And when you ask what, what's top of mind, I looked immediately to her because this journey can't just be an intellectual journey. It's got to be a journey that you lead in your heart as well. So that's, you know, that's what I, you know, whenever I kind of get to the zone of, oh, my God, this is all too hard, I just look up and I see that and I go, I know what I'm doing needs to happen and I keep going. And, um, yeah, I don't want to go into that 90s of you will survive, you will thrive pushing through kind of mantra, but be confident in your journey and go for it. Mm, Excellent. I love that. Thank you. So my final thought started in many different places and now I don't know where to go because I don't know if this is, this is going to be so out of left field from what you've just said then. So, but given that the the discussion that we just had about investors, uh, my final thought was actually a piece that we actually shared a few weeks ago about one ventures and their international women's day post but it just goes back to this conversation. So this is, you know, One Ventures does have female leadership. So three women were appointed to just, I think, in May 2022. So, you know, I think the MD there is female. So, you know, all the right things in terms of their own leadership. But 
basically on International Women's Day, they put out this post. It was very quickly deleted and there was oh, sort yes, of yes. some kind of semblance of apologies along the way. But they said that, you know, for IWD at One Ventures, they highlighted that their partners have a 50-50 split, which is actually really impressive. Their investment team is 50% female and really impressive. Finance and operations team, 50-50 gender split. All the right things. They put out the post saying like, hey, so... We wanted to today highlight uh, some of the men who are supporting women, um, which is IWD. So it was a LinkedIn post and they had this like kind of Brady Bunch style thing of nine men in the image, which we screened, well, somebody screenshot and we were able to get access to that screenshot and um, that's been deleted. But it, it, it just totally missed the mark, obviously, you know, mm. need to elevate, you know. It was also missing the mark because their investments don't go to 50-50 female and that's what we're seeing as the issue in terms of what we know from the figures that we're discussing earlier what you've shared from your experience as well and just the fact that you know it was a missed opportunity to go out and highlight uh you know some of the really great female founders that are out there like like yourself because you know you see you and you see how you know you, you said it yourself that you how you described yourself which is so horrible to hear when you said you're at the bottom of the the rung in terms of what I guess investors would call the ideal investor or, or however you put it in a much more delicate way and it's like but that's just it's so ridiculous that people would see it you should be at the top there that you have got this incredible experience that you bring this incredible diversity into the conversation and that you clearly are across all these issues and hold so much passion and I was like we should be highlighting you know they should have been highlighting someone like you on international women's day um to say you know this is what female founders bring they may not have the funding they may not have the valuation but look at this experience and look at what we can achieve as a society if we keep elevating these people who are really pushing the status quo and really interesting areas like climate or like politics or other areas that uh, obviously we have so many challenges ahead and go back to what you were saying earlier about the you know everything in australia mining 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 the other thing Women is uh, sadly with um, the wealth, when you look at the wealth list and some of those rich lists that come out, you will get the mining entrepreneurs, a couple of tech entrepreneurs like, you know, uh, Melanie Perkins, say from Canva, and then you'll get like all fitness entrepreneurs, all of that going all over the shop. But I'm um, just, that's my final thought. And it probably comes from this last hour that I've spent with you. I said, what a missed opportunity for One Ventures. And I know that they're doing really great things in other areas, but to all the VCs out there, find some female entrepreneurs, even if you don't back them, because clearly you don't back many of them, but even if you don't back them. To well, go- we're, raising, we're raising a $2 million round right now, you know. Um, Angela, you can put them in contact with me. Uh, and it, you know what? The brain drain from Australia and the capability, the sheer capability we've seen in AI in Australia is mind-boggling. Mm. Let's mm. harness this. I mean, we are a great country of miners. We're a great country of hoteliers. Let's use our brains to, you know, really, really lead. We lost our winning spot in climate change. We can win in AI if we now invest. Absolutely. So, so thank you so much for the very long conversation. Thank you, Angela. <laughs> thank you for coming in last minute as well. And all the best with the next $2 million round, the raise that you're on now. And please go check out Polypedia. You can also follow Sue on Twitter where she is, I might use the word prolific, and you have a lot of uh, energy and patience for that platform that I don't have at the moment but I hope to get back one day. And thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast, a reminder that you can access all the stories that we've discussed in some shape or form and subscribe to our daily newsletter around lunchtime each day at womensagenda.com.au forward slash subscribe. Thank you for listening. 